0: Himalayas have long been at the crossroads of the exchange between cultures, yet the social lives of those who inhabit the region are often framed as marginal to historical narratives. And while scholars have studied religious diversity in the context of modern nation-states such as India, Pakistan, Tibet, or Nepal, seldom has the Himalaya been the focus of examination in and of itself. Megan Adamson Sijaputi and Jessica Van Birkenholz remedied this scholarly void in their new collection of essays, Religion and Modernity in the Himalaya. The volume explores religious responses to Himalayan modernity as witnessed in the cultural encounter with new social realities, expectations, and limits. The characteristics of the Himalayan region are fluid, moving beyond geographical boundaries or mountain and valley zones, as are the contemporary human processes of meaning-making in the face of globalization and modernization. In our conversation, we discuss how modernity operates, the social and political factors shaping the Himalayan religious environment, processes of emplacement, Tibetan Buddhist media, environmentalism and development, changing pilgrimage practices, the Nepali goddess tradition, political limits to religious education, and the dynamics of perceived margins and discourses of peripherality. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. And now, my conversation with Megan Adamson Sijaputi and Jessica Van Tyne Birkenholz about Religion and Modernity in the Himalaya, published with Rutledge in 2016. Welcome, Megan and Jessica. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Religion. How are you? Doing
1: well. Good. Thanks for having us.
0: So this book, uh, Religion and Modernity in the Himalaya, super interesting collection, fruitful uh, way of framing the volume uh, in terms of kind of thematic patterns that are coming out uh, and some of the the ethnographic detail that uh, that authors go into. So I'm excited to talk about uh, how this all came together. Um, We always start with a little bit about uh, you guys, though. So uh, could you talk a little bit about what brought each of you to the study of religion, Uh, perhaps mentors or moments that were influential in uh, perhaps bringing you to uh, South Asia and the Himalaya region or the types of approaches that you guys take.
2: Yeah, sure. So thank you, Christian, for having us uh, inviting us to talk about the book. We're really excited about it. It was a fun project and um, we're looking forward to a conversation about it now. Um, how I came to the study of religion, I guess I'll go back only as far as college, but I studied at uh, Colorado College um, and there studied, majored in religion, but studied philosophy, religion, dabbled in some Sanskrit and um, ended up in Nepal on a culture and society immersion program uh, for my study abroad and um, was exposed to the really fascinating and complex mix of Hinduism and Buddhism that one finds there. At least that's all that I saw then I would come to learn of more religions there later but um that really piqued my interest academically in in religious studies um and then I went on um with some diversions here and there ended up at the University of Colorado doing a master's in religious studies there where I focused on South Asia and women and gender in South Asia mostly but then ended up working with Fred Denny too um, in my first study of Islam Um, and wasn't sure if I was going to go on in the graduate study of religion or not. And then spent the summer in the Punjab on a Punjab studies program run out of uh, UCSB and ended up just being pretty blown away by the mixture there that I saw of um, Sikhism, Islam, Hinduism, uh, religion and politics Um, just a a fascinating world to me that compelled me to want to go on and um, pursue religious studies even further. So um, went to the University of California, Santa Barbara, worked with some really terrific people there, um, and focused on South Asia, but um particularly on Islamic traditions of South Asia. So um came at it from that and uh here we are today. So that's a bit of my background.
1: My background is is quite similar to Megan's in, in certain ways, um, insofar as my interest in religion, um, began also as a graduate undergraduate student in college. Um, though I kind of came to the study of religion via classics. Um, and I was really interested in the classical languages, um, and classic Greco Roman mythology and religion, um, which led me eastward to, uh, Hindu mythology, which led me to Hinduism. And I spent my junior year abroad, um, And part of that was in Nepal, and that just was a game changer um, in all sorts of unexpected ways. I was absolutely amazed by everything I saw, and I was so curious about everything I was seeing and hearing and smelling and um, encountering. And it just raised a lot of questions for me about the vibrancy of religion, um, which was new in my own personal experience. Um, And so I returned and the same professor um, at Vassar College who taught me Latin and ancient Greek then taught me Sanskrit my senior year. um, And that really solidified my my desire to go on to graduate school. Um, I I had a, a fellowship after graduating from college to do some independent research in Nepal for a year on women's traditions um, and this is when kind of my interest in women's traditions and women in religion really started to develop more. The Hinduism factor um, was already pretty well established at that point point. Um, and going on to graduate school um, at the University of Chicago to study with Wendy Doniger um, was the, the path um, that seemed to be the only path for me at the time um, and I was very interested in textual aspects of Hinduism and kind of came to the ethnographic side of it later, ultimately um, started off at the divinity school, ultimately got my PhD in the department of South Asian languages and civilizations um, still under the guidance of Wendy Doniger. Um, and interestingly, I think it's worth noting that a lot of those of us who work in Nepal and the Himalayan region kind of get our first Um, get our feet wet on these study abroad programs and so I along with many other um, individuals that I know who did study abroad programs uh, as undergrad students our dissertations and later our first book projects were based on study independent study projects that we did on those study abroad programs and that was my experience Um, and so you know I always like to kind of give a shout out to the importance of these study abroad (laughs) programs um so, yeah, and that's that's kind of how I ended up where I am today.
0: Yeah, that's interesting how there there are many parallels between the two of you. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how you guys teamed up and then how you started to uh, bring this this collection together? What, where did it emerge from and, and how did it move forward, the project?
2: I'll say a word about how we teamed up and how we met, and then um, we could talk about how the project itself emerged. So getting back to study abroad, of course, both of us ended up pursuing field work in Nepal and our graduate work um, for our dissertation projects. I think we were both on Fulbright Hayes uh, Mm -hmm. dissertation fellowships and based in Kathmandu um, at a pretty tense time. This is when um, projects outside of the Kathmandu Valley were almost impossible to undertake. It was the height of the Maoist insurgency or the People's War. Um, And there were, you know, curfews and buns, which is the term that's used when everything is shut down in the city, schools, roads, all that. Um, It was a really, really crazy and interesting time to be in Nepal. Um, And we were both in the valley with a handful of others who were doing their dissertation work. And I think we met on one of the Fulbright gatherings, or I I can't remember what it was, but... um, uh, we kind of hit it off right when we met a lot of great people there at that time. Um, and of course, we're doing quite different projects as well as Jessica mentioned, hers, um, well, she'll talk more about, but um, on women and gender and the goddess traditions and doing some textual, a lot of textual work as well. And I was working on um, a project among the Muslim minority in Kathmandu and studying, um, you know, the emerging Islamic revival movements there. Which, again, to return to study abroad were things that I didn't even see or were aware of when I was a study abroad student. So often it takes multiple um, journeys to a place to even have your eyes opened up enough to see some of the things that are right in front of you. Um, But, yeah, so... That's where our working, our friendship and our working relationship started because we would exchange ideas and uh, talk about the progress of our projects and field work under um, kind of intense conditions, um, including, you know, evacuation at the height of the, of the war and so forth. Um, and the transition from Nepal um, being a Hindu monarchy to no longer having a king. All of that was taking place at that time. So there was a lot to, to um talk about and collaborate about, have great discussions about. So that's how we first began talking about our work and working together.
1: Yeah. And from there, we, um, you know, building off of that foundation, uh, we would see, we, we, we became conference buddies. Um, we would see each other at conferences, um, most often at the annual conference on South Asia in Madison, Wisconsin, every fall. Um, and it was actually at one of those conferences um, in Madison in 2010 where we started talking about this kind of our, our respective work and the region that we work in, the Himalayas, um, You know, our field of, of religion and realizing just how that there seemed to be a dearth um, of material on religion in the Himalayan region. Um, there's been an extraordinary amount of really excellent work done on the Himalayan region. This is often usually done by anthropologists and geographers. Um, they have really kind of dominated um, Himalayan studies um, throughout the history of Himalayan studies. Um, and we were, you know, kind of lamenting or taking stock of the fact that um, how few of us scholars of religion there were. Um, engaging in the region explicitly, and so that kind of sparked this idea of, well, let's let's see what we can do about that, um, and let's start a conversation. And um, it was Megan who who had the specific idea about modernity um, in the Himalayas. She can say something more about that in a second. Um, but we started you know, asking questions about kind of the conversations that we'd like to have, um, and thinking about those in the field um, or closely related to the field that that might be interested in partaking of these conversations with us and so um we had we organized a double panel um at 2011 conference the first himalayan studies conference ever so there's um the association for nepal and himalayan studies um that both megan and i have been um a part of for a number of years um i'm on the executive council. Uh, board now. Megan was on the the executive council for a while as well, predating me. Um, And I'm also the reviews editor for the journal associated with uh, the Association for Nepal and Himalayan Studies, which in shorthand we refer to as ANHS. Um, And so uh, we now have periodic Himalayan Studies conferences, and we organized a double panel for the very first of those Himalayan Studies conferences on religion and modernity. Um, and it's from those that we got our first um, collection of papers for this volume. And then later on, we solicited a few others um, and presented these papers again in different iterations um, in a c- couple of subsequent conferences, both again, Himalayan Studies conferences and the annual conference on South Asia in medicine um to finally get a group of really solid interesting papers um dynamic papers that engage with these questions of religion and modernity in great ethnographic detail um Megan I don't know if you want to say something more about the specific idea
2: yeah the idea of the um how this how we conceptualize this even in its earliest stages i mean Jessica spoke to the you know, the, the fact that there were scholars of the Himalayas presenting at the South Asia conference, and then there was a Himalayan studies conference. And, you know, there's, there's been, I wouldn't say tension, but kind of this ambivalence about where do the Himalayas fit in region. And I'll talk more about, or we can talk more about the region of the Himalaya later, um, if we like, but, um, you know, Himalayas are typically not um, recognized so much in the study of South Asia. They're seen as peripheral, which of course, geographically, they are on the Periphery, but I mean, even just in terms of the lived traditions, there kind of there may be a paper here or there, there may be a panel, but again, it might be about environmental science, it might be about development. Um, but so we were kind of um, feeling out and playing with this tension between, you know, um, how do we foreground research in the Himalaya, but also be thoughtful in um, inter- in our interrogation of what it even means to invoke the Himalaya, like what is that region, and is it, you know, do we want are studies of the, that take place in the Himalaya and documentation of lived religions, lived traditions there, best situated within South Asia or within its own area called the Himalaya. So we didn't really set out to necessarily answer those questions in this volume, but rather to ask them and kind of ask them in a formal way in what seems to be, you know, one of the first times that um, you have a grouping of scholars uh, work together to speak to those questions. Um, and we also wanted to, I mean, I think documentation was an important process, one of our concerns to
1: mm-hmm. our interests,
2: right? It's just, doc, you know, who's out there, that's, who's doing close um, ethnographic or field work, close textual work, studying lived religion in the Himalaya? Who's out there and where, you know, let's bring these, let's document some of, not just the work of the scholars themselves, but of course, more, much more importantly, the traditions themselves and the voices of people of the Himalayas. Um, let's get some of this um, together and in conversation with with each other. Um, I think, too, um, you know, we wanted to put, we wanted to see what kinds of um, potential there was for, or what kinds of shared experiences or orientations or challenges that religious communities face in the Himalaya might be similar across the different Subsettings of the Himalaya. So, you know, were there are there shared experiences, are there shared challenges or dynamics or processes, you know, in one community in this part of the Himalaya uh, and another community in this part of the Himalaya, or are they really distinct? Um, will we argue? And I think the book uh, really flushes this out or bears this out that there are commonalities across the Himalaya. Um, but you know, we were trying to at least begin a conversation about this and try to engender this conversation and, and also document at the same time, um, what we know about lived traditions. Yeah. Um, there's been a, a decent amount of, or a, not decent, I mean a great amount and very excellent scholarship on, say for example, Tibetan Buddhism, right. Or, um, other, um, well, that's probably the best example I can think of in which it's a kind of, it's a discrete tradition in a way. And so you have scholars who may come together, say at the AR or other conferences and have a Himalaya, um, panel or a Tibetan Buddhism panel, but it's just Tibetan Buddhism in, in all of its variety, but it's within that larger umbrella of tradition. We wanted to bring multiple traditions together to see if there were shared processes that we might identify or if, if the contrast were something that warranted new, interesting questions and conversations.
0: Yeah, I think the, for for me the the volume worked very well in kind of showing those uh, thematic traces that are uh, that are found across traditions. Um, for for many of us, we're outside of this uh, this region, though. So I, I think maybe now would be a good time to uh, help us think about this this region, the Himalaya. What what exactly are we talking about when we're talking about the Himalaya? What are some of the key social and political factors that shape your subjects? Uh, what what would we need to know as a as a novice to get into this this collection
1: yeah that's a really good question um, what you know what constitutes the himalaya is certainly a question that a lot of us think about um who work in, in the region and there's not necessarily one easy answer um what the himalaya is um it depends on who you're talking to. Um, it depends on your perspective and, and what context what you're referring to. Um, so we can think of it, you know, there are certain countries um, that are all part of the Himalaya in different ways, right? Um the Himalaya is not its own nation state, obviously. Um, but It encompasses this mountainous area that we find in Nepal, Bhutan, Tibet, uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Um, but it it really depends on who you're asking and why you're asking, Um, both if you ask a scholar, um, if you ask uh, a, a local person living in the Himalayan regions how they would define it, you might get some very different answers. Um, And even for the Association for Nepal and Himalayan Studies, this is something that uh, we're constantly grappling with or with the the journal Himalaya. um, That is the the journal for the association constantly thinking about, well, is this book appropriate to review for this journal? Or is this article dealing with a topic that is relevant? Is this area part of the Himalaya? Um, So there are some very kind of specific questions Uh, surrounding the Himalaya in in that sense, Um, but as Megan so wonderfully illustrates um, in her introduction to the (laughs) edited volume, um, you know, there's a lot of other questions about what constitutes the Himalaya, right? That that these are, um, as I said, a lot of different countries belong to the Himalaya, but no country in its entirety necessarily belongs to the Himalaya. Um, Megan, I don't know if you want to flesh that out a bit.
2: Yeah, sure. So for, you know, and in contrast to South Asia, I mean, this is a region that South Asia, for example, would be delineated by national borders for the most part, right? So, um, of course, those borders are somewhat fluid, and we know that cultures and traditions cross those borders as well, and uh, Borderland Studies is doing, you know, doing a brilliant job in helping Many of us to understand how that's the case, but in the Himalayas, it does. You know, it's a region that just doesn't line up with national boundaries in any clear way. Also, as Jessica mentioned, I mean, you know, it's a we envision it as a mountain, or we conceptualize it as a mountainous region. But you know, are the plains? You know, the contiguous plains um, for example the Tarai of Nepal are they also the himalaya I think mm-hmm. our colleague Arjun Gunaratna, for example an anthropologist who's works in the, who's worked in the Tarai and written a lot about Nepal would argue that yes that is part of the himalaya um, so where do the mountainous ranges you know where where does that end is it um, you know and how far for example west do we go into Afghanistan into the Hindu Kush or not some would say yes some would say no um, I'm working right now with um, Jacqueline Fuchs, uh, who's, who's worked in Ladakh, and she's an anthropologist. And we're thinking about some of this as we conceptualize um, a journal volume, or a special issue actually, in uh, the Himalaya Journal that's put out by NHS, because um, we've put out a call for papers on, <laughs> on the Himalayas, um, and actually on... Islamic and Muslim traditions and cultures of the Himalayas. But do diaspora populations also count in that? Other parts of, say, Tibetan Muslim community, Tibetan Muslim communities who are um, in other parts of China, would we consider that part of the Himalaya? I mean, you know, it just becomes increasingly complicated. Um, so, it's, so it's actually a really fun and interesting thing to, you know, I think question is what constitutes the Himalaya. And, it, and I think, what we've enjoyed about this process of working on the book, and what we so appreciated from our authors, is that using the lens of religion, we can think about the Himalaya in a very particular way. We can see how, you know, maybe maybe religion and religious communities or practices or particular types of discourses help us understand boundaries um, of the Himalaya in a different way than than um, say a different frame would.
0: Now the other part of the title here, uh, you you pick all these really <laughs> complicated terms, right? Religion, modernity, Himalaya uh, is the other factor here is modernity. So, uh, what what do you all mean by modernity here? This is a, a fraught term. Uh, how did you see this as a kind of useful framework for the project? And um, you know, part of what what you do in the uh, the introduction, Megan, and then in some of the other subsequent chapters. Uh, how does modernity operate in the Himalaya region itself, which is not always uh, the same?
2: Yeah, um, modernity, the beast of modernity. I, yeah, <laughs> I was just reading, um, teaching my class, "The uh, Islam is a Foreign Country, you know, the great book uh, by. Um, Zarina-, Zarina Gray. Well, and she talks a little bit about modernity and she says, of course, modernity as, as an analytic concept or modernities is, is no longer even a useful one. Because in some ways it is kind of an empty signifier, but then we felt that it does speak to something though, that's, it, that is worth talking about and it's worth trying to name. And modernity is kind of the best term that we came up with and trying to name what it was that we were seeing and thinking about. And, um, and I guess, and I talk about this somewhat that and at the end of that section of the intro chapter, and that is that. In one way, we're talking about this general experience of an awareness of the new. There's being something new, you know. And in, in across the himalayas certainly in Nepal, which is what I'm most familiar with, and I think Jesse is too, is you know, development discourse and talk about modernization is so is just it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Um, the presence of NGOs and the UN, and and the fact that Nepal was opened up. Um, to the outside world in 1952 only. And, um, you know, so modernization is is something that um, is very concrete, and yet it's kind of a linear path forward, or it implies a linear path forward that's aligned with development in a way. But then modernity is something diff- related, but bigger and more abstract. Um, we've we find has salience. It's, it is something worth talking about and trying to identify in the Himalaya. And that again, is this idea that this sense among people and their practices and their live, the way they live religion, that there is something new out there, that there's either, whether it's in terms of development and there's, there are new infrastructures coming into place or there are new modes of communication and technology and so forth, that whether they're experiencing that modernization, quote-unquote, or not, they're still part of this experience of an awareness of something that's new, and that awareness, um, for lack of a better term, which we're naming modernity. So it's more of the experience and the awareness and some sort of almost um, milieu of sorts that we're trying to invoke with modernity rather than any sort of process or anything that has some sort of Western genealogy. Um, That's not really what we meant by it. We wanted to Talk talk about changing realities, inventive ways of living and being and surviving, um, and that the awareness of that and the need for that among people in the Himalaya could be described as modernity. Um,
1: and, and with and with that awareness, there's also that's paired with the sense that that this modernization, which again is we're characterizing as different than modernity itself, um, that, that these other processes are imminent, right. And that they're also desirable. Um, so, so having that, having that awareness and that kind of expectation of change that's coming, um, if it hasn't already come already or further change, um, as well as, some kind of desire for that um, and and how to grapple with, you know, we were interested in seeing how these different religious communities and practices are being, are coping with this and are managing um, this new engagement with modernity and, and how the practices are being affected by it. Um, and and one of the interesting things that i think that the volume does a really nice job of with with the individual contributions is again with all of the rich ethnographic detail and this was um a, a clear focus for us um as editors that we really wanted contributions that were very rich and um on the ground right um in the in the thick of um in the thick of it um, was that we found that there are multiple modernities, right? We don't want to suggest that there's only one singular uh, monolithic modernity, but that what we're seeing in the, in the Himalayan region are multiple modernities and what do those look like? So again, in many ways, the volume ends up raising and asking more questions than it necessarily provides answers. Um, But we think that this is a really, um, that these questions are important and that we're we're looking to uh as megan said earlier engender this conversation and allow it to expand and grow and invite others to partake in it
2: yeah and i and you know we don't use this term much in the line i have it a few places i think in the introduction but you know another way of of framing this could have been through globalization which i think is a is a, a a problematic term in some ways or at least um, very complicated. Um, but modernities, and if we're invoking multiple modernities as we are here, it's, I think, implies or at least includes the dimension of human experience, which I, I think comes across in, in all of these essays, is that they're not just uh, documentation of, you know, conditions and practices, and there's there's that lived Experience um, that's attended to by each of the authors, I think, and, and I think a term, you know, mo- modernity as a conceptual frame or as an analytical tool enables us to consider that in a way that that say globalization would not have, and certainly mo- modernization doesn't.
0: Now, when uh, when you start to uh, get into these individual pieces, you uh, frame the the collection in two parts. Um, and the first part is uh, titled Space, Place, and Material Modernities. Um, and here you have examples that deal with uh, natural environments, uh, the use of electronic media, um, different shifting uh, types of genre materials that uh, become popular. Um, what, do, what do these essays try to accomplish? What ties them together? And, and what are some of the case studies that you uh, put in the section?
2: um uh, i think i'll start with that <laughs> Just, <laughs> um uh let's see so yes, yeah, so we have th- three parts in this first part um you know there's so many ways that you can that you can frame sections in an edited volume like this especially when you have great material to work with which i feel that we really did um we have a chapter on um on Nath in the Hall, High Himalaya by luke whitmore we have a piece on T-Pop and the Lama, which is about Tibetan pop, um, that's by Holly Gailey. And then we have a piece called "Pocketing the Himalaya by Andrea Pinckney. And, um, you know, all three of these, I think they, like all the essays in the, in the book, but all three of these are very specific and they're very close readings of these practices. So one is pilgrimage and the way that that's shifted. Um, the other is, you know, this kind of subversive, um, kind of coded way of um, expressing political desires and and religious desires, but through pop music, and then the other through um, again pilgrimage. So, um, but from a very different perspective than um, than the other essay on pilgrimage. Um, Just, do you want to speak more of the specifics of those?
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that there's 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 so much to say, but I think one of the the as as Megan said before that. The whole volume could have been structured in any number of different ways, um, and and but we found that these three pieces work really well together in terms of thinking about um, the the material modernities, right, and um, space in place. So the the, sex, the whole section is subtitled "Space, Place, and Material Modernities." Um, And so looking at pilgrimage pamphlets, these these souvenir pamphlets um, for pilgrimages um, and pilgrims and the ways that these have changed over time and have really facilitated, um, travel to these four very important, prominent pilgrimage sites um, up in the Indian Himalayas, And in Holly Gailey's piece, looking at these uh, video CDs, um, another form of media, um, which also ties in with the the cell phone videos that are the focus of uh, Luke Whitmore's piece on Caternop and the ways in which these are in their own ways um, reproducing these, these sites and these places and these practices, but are also shifting the conversation and facilitating different kinds of engagements um, with each individual place or the idea of these places, in, um, specifically in, in terms of the uh, Tibetan experience um, in, in the diaspora. Um, so there's a lot of interesting, so kind of holding on to these very specific material practices was the common thread between these three essays. Um, but again, we could have, um, we could have organized this whole volume in any number of different ways, which we had, of course, discussed, um, which also speaks to kind of the fluidity of of these boundaries, right? Not just in, in the Himalayan region, but within the different practices and the different cultures and communities um, and the ways and the discourses that are circulating among them and materializing um, in different ways. Yeah, and and.
2: And place, of course, is a, it's in the title of our part one and part two. Um, and place is just such an important theme across these essays, um, in part because, um, I mean, I, I don't know if we'll have a chance to talk about this later or not, but I mean, what, you know, some of the themes that we drew out too were um, these ideas of one, peripherality, the other of emplacement, but the I- peripherality, the ideas that You know, the way that centers and margins are conceptualized and in this first section, while we're looking at the materiality of these um, lived traditions and the changes in these lived traditions, space is so important to all three of the ways, the way that material objects are used um, and conceptualized. Um, in particular places. You know, you have two, the Luke Whitmore's essay and Andrea Pinckney's essay, both dealing with pilgrimage and shifts in the movement of people where many, many more people are able to attend these pilgrimages now than ever before. So how is that accommodated through, you know, video and cell phone videos or through new versions of the Mahatma and, and that are more accessible kind of guide, guide books for this pilgrimage. But then Holly Gailey's is quite the, the reverse is that it's a more con- constricted you know, there's much less movement, of course, in Tibet and among that community, and le- much less freedom of expression. So, um, you know, the material object of the of the VCD, which seems kind of antiquated, but is a very powerful still um, material object there for communicating symbols and and messages and so forth, and through song, um, take place somewhere where there's much less movement. But the place itself is very important to what's being communicated. You know, the place of Tibet for Tibetans is central to their understanding of themselves and their religious um, lives. And so in that way, we felt that space and materiality, um, played out in some really interesting ways or our authors, um, drew them out in some really interesting ways in those pieces.
0: And the the second section, of course, uh, deals with many of these kind of interrelationships, but, uh, you frame it uh around called gods gods in place migration deities and identities and and here really at least for for me as a reader uh this kind of intersection of between place and identity uh, seemed to be kind of the the most prominent theme uh across the essays that you have in this section um how did you guys conceptualize these essays kind of complementing each other and uh what were some of the the, the examples that uh that worked for you and kind of thinking about place and identity?
1: Um, So in in this section, there are two essays, one of which is my own, um, on a Nepali goddess tradition, um, the Nepali goddess Sustani. And the second is um, a piece called Adulterous Dotyel, or Protector of the Oppressed, about uh, the god Ganganath in Uttarakhand by Radhika Govindrajan. Um, And we're both dealing with questions surrounding Important deities in two different communities. Um I'm I'm dealing with this goddess um, in Nepal's Hindu communities primarily, well, historically Nawar Hindu communities, um, but also for a long time now, the, the high caste hell Hindu or Parbatiya communities, um, who worship this goddess every year through a recitation of a, a sacred text associated with her. Um, and in my piece, I'm looking to, um, document the, some very prominent shifts in her tradition that have taken place, um, very recently after a long history of, rather significant shifts, but also very remarkable stability. Um, And those earlier shifts really ended in the earliest 20th century. And then we've had about a century's worth of um, a lack of overt movement in the tradition um, it's not to say that there haven't been um, developments here or there, but within the last uh, 10 to 20 years, there have been some, some very significant new shifts within the tradition, most specifically around the goddess and her finally um, being given a temple. Um, before she was an anaconic deity who um, was worshipped only in the form of the text and only during this particular time of the year and now she has a temple and is accessible 24-7, 365 days a year. Um, and so thinking about place, um, her actually being grounded, fixed in a place and how that's shifted her identity um, and her interaction with the community around her. Um, and in Radhika's Piece, um, she's looking to this god called Ganganap, whose history is in Nepal, but who migrates with Nepali migrants into the Indian Himalayan region of Uttarakhand, um, and is looking at how kind of different um, his identity and the identity of his devotees have shifted with that shift in place. Um, and and kind of how these different modern developments of um, migration and the relationships between the Himalayan region and the plains between the Himalayas and India versus Nepal, um, how all of these dynamics play out and we see them kind of performed within um, this this one God tradition um, that she writes about.
0: Now
1: the third. Oh, oh! I was just going to say I didn't know if Megan wanted to add anything to that. Um, Yeah, we can. One quick thing, yeah, to add
2: um, is I mean thinking about these as distinctly Himalayan traditions too. You know, for um, I mean, goddess and varying forms of the goddess and the Himalaya are they're, they're quite distinct to what we would find in other parts of South Asia. Um, and we see that, I think, you know, we see that in your chapter, Jessica, and then also in Radhika's chapter, this um, documentation and interrogation of, of possession is is quite striking, too, because that also is a practice that's understood, you know, as distinctly Himalayan. Um, and so, not, not not that it only takes place in the Himalayas, but that it has um, very particular features in the Himalaya that I think scholars of South Asia um, would find uh, pretty interesting.
0: Now, the, the uh, third and final section of the uh, volume is called Education, Governance, Official Discourses, and Religion. And here you have a, a, a sample of case studies um, that walk us through the kind of uh, interesting dynamic here uh, between um, kind of the live religion that you've been talking about, but then a more kind of formalized way of conceptualizing these traditions. Um, so what what are some of the kind of Uh, main takeaways when we think about um the the case studies that you have for this third section
2: um main takeaways well you know we do see institutions the presence of institutions in this in these three essays more than we see in in the others and um i think one one takeaway from these pieces when we put them in conversation with one another is that um official discourses as we're calling it in the part title or the part three title, you know, official discourses and different forms of legislation and governance and then educational structures, they do play an important role in both limiting um, or providing the limits uh, around which or limiting what changes can take place in the community, but then also they can serve to help um, create new changes and put into more effective put into effect and make more official changes that people have been working on, um, bringing into being for some time. So thinking, for example, um, about the waste management, which is documented by Elizabeth Allison, so waste management in Bhutan, um, and she looks at how, um, official discourses and, and, and govern, you know, rules in Bhutan would dictate the way that, um, well, actually are telling people that they need to dispose of their, of their trash in different ways than they understand to be appropriate, um, to, to the way one is supposed to live on the land. And so lived religion, the way that they understand the trees and the nature of plastic and all of that, and what kind of spirits live in those, um, you know, provide, um, both opportunities for the state to rethink the way that they want to run their waste management program, but also pre- um, present certain challenges. Um, and in the case of, and the other two essays, um, Redefining Monastic Education by Nadine Placha and Schooling Virtue by um, Catherine Miller, which deals with uh, Northern Pakistan and Ismaili communities there. Um, education is that um, official discourse and the kind of programs through which um, Women, in the case of Nadine's essay, um, nuns can pursue, you know, greater gender equality, and that young people can, in the case of uh, Catherine's essay in Pakistan, can pursue kind of a social upliftment and a kind of social progress. So I think wasn't, you know, what we really get from these three is that institutions. Um, can have a big impact and that people also can impact institutions and that religion in particular, in the way that religion is lived outside of the official discourses of maybe central authorities of the traditions can have a big impact on, um, day-to-day life as well.
0: Do you want to add anything,
2: Jessica?
1: I think begins some, some things up quite nicely. Um,
0: I, I agree. No, the, no, I don't want yeah. to hurt you. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, the collection for me, it, it made me, uh, you know, think about this region in new ways. It wasn't really on my uh, kind of geographical radar in terms of thinking about how this area might kind of make me think about how traditions change over time, uh, how they adapt to new circumstances. Um, you, you set this up in the introduction for the book, and uh, you've kind of touched upon it here and there, um, but you, you did mention that these kind of dual themes that we definitely see throughout the pieces of peripherality. And then, emplacement. Um, I'm w- I'm wondering how you two conceptualize these uh, through your kind of editorial work of reading through these in terms of gathering these together. What h- how do these play out in the Himalaya region?
2: You want to start with that, Jessica, or do you want me to start?
1: I'll just say briefly, you know, that these were two concepts um, that that Megan identified quite early on, and that kind of through our discussions. Um, we were able to develop as important themes that that run throughout, and and really that's also in part because, you know, they they do stand out in in these different essays. Um, so in looking at peripherality and and the the dynamic between center and margins, right, and the shifting between those and the perspective, um, which which is always fluid and varying depending on. Um, who's the one looking or seeing or trying to articulate w- where the center is um, versus the margins and the and the periphery? Um and in placement, again, you know, this has already kind of come up, the, the importance of thinking about community and persons with respect to space and place. Um and so much of what we're seeing in the Himalayas, there's such a great diversity in the Himalayan region um, that we really do have to be attentive to matters of uh, space and place and and the the specificities um, of of place in in particular and thinking about how that informs our understanding of identities and um, context... uh, context, right, and the contextualization of different practices and people in these different um, places. I'll, I'll throw yeah. the ball to you, Megan. Yeah, yeah.
2: that's 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 great um, to add to to what Jessica just said. I mean, I I find these this idea of peripherality and and also emplacement to just be so interesting, and that the and this region this region is such an interesting place to explore it because. I mean, in my experience, people, and I think probably for you too, Jessica, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, people, for example, N- Nepal, Nepal is always, if we can invoke the place, that <laughs> means some agency, kind of, um, people there are always aware of the fact that they are peripheral to India, for example, right? Or peripheral to China, you know, China is invoked, India is invoked as these really large places that have these gravitational centers and that the cultures and the politics of those places have a direct impact on nepali people's lives right and yet nepali in my experience people in nepal feel that they are absolutely at the center as well right that their center they're at the center of you know these deep long-standing religious traditions um their cultures and so forth and of course those i say those in the plural because there are many different cultures there as well but so this push and this back and forth between feeling peripheral or marginal or conceptualizing oneself, one's community, one's tradition that way, and then feeling the opposite is something I think that generates really interesting social practices and cultural practices and ultimately re- religious practices and discourses. Um, and we see it, and I think that the theme of peripherality, even more than in placement, although that's related, is, you know, we see it all throughout this region, we see it in South Asia, for example, if we, if we look at a place like Kashmir, um, Indian Kashmir, for example, you know, I had the, um, pleasure to be able to travel there a few years ago. And, um, it's really clear that people there feel not only that they're at the margins, but they're in a different place. They, they, they understand India. Um, they might understand their, they might understand Kashmir is occupied territory. A number of people do, even if for those who don't, experience it in that way still india itself is something different they they feel peripheral to india and delhi as they would invoke it as the political center cultural center um but then they also are kind of their own center in a way and how that all plays out politically in south asia of course we know is is pretty profound and um so it just the politics of all of this is very interesting too. And that's something that we don't, that our essays don't get into so much, but of course um, nothing about religion is really ever apolitical. And so these are about deeply, um, they're about not even problematic political issues, but just deeply complex political issues as well. Um, This whole periphery um, and margin discussion. Um, And then one quick thing about emplacement, and placement, I wanted to say too is just um, I think that one of the most interesting questions in religious studies being asked now and explored by scholars is what's the you know this this uh, what's the relationship between a person or a community and the place in which they're situated especially we look at diaspora communities or religious communities in America that fit into minority categories I mean this critical relationship and this ongoing negotiation of the critical relationship between person and place or community and place, I think is yielding some really interesting new ideas and insights, um, in the broader field of religious studies. So hopefully if we can contribute some tiny little drop of, uh, into that conversation, then I'll, I'll feel that this volume has, has achieved some, some of what we wanted to achieve.
0: Yeah, I, I think you certainly accomplished that. I hope other people will, uh, will take it up and, and, uh, read through some of these chapters. Um, I'm wondering if uh, you guys now being post book, uh, if there's any kind of reflections you might have on the process of co-editing. What, uh, how, what did you learn? Uh, what worked for you? What are some best practices, perhaps things to <laughs> not do? I'm sure other people mm. listening uh, are either thinking yeah. about or doing, doing the same thing. So what, what might you tell them?
1: I think the first thing, um, that I would tell anyone who's considering co-editing a volume would be to make sure your co-editor is someone that you really, really like. Um, I mean, I mean, honestly, we spent a lot of time together. Um, not always physically together, but a lot of time on the phone and emailing and whatnot. Um, and because, you know, we genuinely like each other and we communicate well together um, and have a, a similar take on on life, I guess, and work um, and and all of that. It worked really well for us. Um, I think choosing the wrong person would be utterly disastrous. <laughs> um, so this, that would be my my first piece of advice.
2: Well. I would agree with that. And, and it was such a pleasure to work with, with you, Jessica. Um, not, not just because, yeah, I mean, we get along and I think we like each other and have similar views and things, but, uh, also I think we had a, um, I, and I think this would be something to consider anytime you're taking on an edited volume is we had, um, other research goals that we were pursuing at the same time that we were, um, aware were important. To each other, you know, and so we had we had both a sense of humor <laughs> about and a kind of I I think kind of realistic view of how long it might take an edited volume to come together and we were willing to be flexible with one another about that. Um, you know, these things can take a lot longer because you're marshalling work from people around the world and on different timelines. And um, I so appreciated the kind of flexibility that that we were able to have with one another um, both in our editorial work Um, and just in, in recognizing that these things, you know, edited volumes are sometimes projects you have going on, we have something else going on. And so, um, you have to, you have to be realistic about how long they can take and maybe sometimes a bit longer than you might, you might expect, I think too, um, whether it's co-editing or editing in general um, make sure you would like to edit (laughs) Um, (laughs) because, you know, it's not just about bringing together this great work, but you, you work really carefully with the authors or ideally you do. And, and for me, um, and Jess, you might, um, want to say something about this too. I don't want to speak for you, but I loved reading these our my colleagues work Mm -hmm. and I loved editing their work because, Um, it was just such a pleasure to be able to think about ways that they might shape their work differently and then, and then actually see how they would change it sometimes in direct response, sometimes not. It was a really rewarding, um, collaborative kind of synergistic process, both with the authors. And then, you know, when you have a co-editor and someone of who is as brilliant and hardworking as my co-editor, Jessica, Mm -hmm. then it's fun because you're helping to bring into being new work, which, um. I, it's really rewarding, but you have to like editing. So, if you like editing, then it's great.
1: Yeah, I would. I would. I, I would I, yeah, I, I would echo that um, entirely. <laughs> um, you know, it, it it is a lot of work, whether or not you're doing it with a co-editor or solo. Um, but it it was incredibly gratifying, and and I learned so much, um, and that was really satisfying um, and just made it all the more engaging um, that there were such rich contributions and such lovely people to work with. And in in, in having a co-editor to have a conversational partner to talk through these different pieces, to think about the themes and to think about the kind of contribution that we wanted the volume to make together, um, it, it was just an incredibly satisfying Project is certainly not without its frustrations throughout the whole process because um, things do take a lot longer and, you know, there are hiccups along the way, um, as with anything, but um, but it was absolutely fantastic.
0: Now, uh, before I get, let you guys go, um, people are probably uh, interested in what you, you two are up to as well. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, projects you're working on now or things that you have uh, coming out that we could uh, get our eyes on.
1: So I am thrilled to announce that my uh, book is due out in March 2018 um, from Oxford University Press. Um, It's called Reciting the Goddess, Narratives of Place and the Making of Hinduism in Nepal. And it um, is the The larger piece, um, out of which um, the chapter in religion and virginity in the Himalaya, Himalaya stems from, um, but it traces the history and development of this goddess tradition, the goddess Sustani, and specifically her textual devotional tradition, the Sustani Vrata um from the 16th century up to the present day, looking at um, the different moments of textual expansion. Um, and other twists and turns throughout the textual history um, of of the text but then of the goddess herself and her iconography and so on that I present both as a case study in and of itself because um, virtually no research has been done on this goddess um, but also looking at Though there, there is a little bit of, of good research um, that focuses on her ritual tradition, um, but nothing that's been focusing specifically on the goddess or her textual tradition. And this is a text that's read every winter over the course of a month. Um, and this practice has, as far as we can tell, um, has an unbroken history from the late 16th century up to the present day. Um, so, but I use the text also as uh, a lens through which to look at the formation of Hindu identity in Nepal vis-a-vis Hindu identity in India, um, and I do this by mapping the history and development of the text onto the history and development of Nepal as a political entity um, and its its development as a Hindu kingdom to see where. Um, where conversations that were happening in the region uh and locally we can see those conversations being taken up by the text and its audience um and playing out and being different ideas and articulations of hindu identity being um promulgated through the text um and its its annual recitation so that's coming out in march and i'm very excited about that yeah congratulations. um and thank you and looking forward um Starting some new projects, um, also focused on women and gender, um, Hindu women and gender in Nepal, women's movements, um, the third sex, uh the third gender, uh, and the Nepali context. Um, and we'll we'll see where those how those all take shape um in the in the near future. Yeah, um, I am working,
2: I've got a couple of new things that I'm working on and I'm excited about. So my previous or my work, to, a large amount of my work to date has focused on Islam and Nepal Islamic traditions um, in urban Nepal and looking at uh, reform and revivalism and po- politics of identity, Hindu-Muslim relations and so forth. So um, I'm hoping to start a new project, um, a smaller project on um, girls in Majasas in Nepal um, and work with um, people in the community there to try to document and um, and start studying um, what's taking place in these um, educational institutions for, um, for women in Nepal. Um, I'm also, and this is related to the book project or the book that we just discussed is I'm really excited to be doing another collaborative project, but on a smaller scale, um, with Jacqueline Fuchs, who I mentioned earlier, um, who has worked on Ladakh and a number of other things, but we're putting together a special um, issue for the journal Himalaya on the Himalayan Ummah. So we're doing somewhat kind of the same thing that Jessica and I did with the book, but on a smaller scale and specific to Islamic traditions and Muslim cultures. So I'm writing a piece for that, um, that actually is conceptualizing, trying to conceptualize the Himalayas from um, as an Islamic space. So what that would mean, what that would require, what that would, entail um, and then I have been larger project and interest in um, religion and the body um, that I'm developing that's in its very early stages so um, it's a lot to um, a lot of exciting things I'm hoping to be doing in the next uh, few years.
0: Yeah. Well, good luck uh, on all these projects. And uh, I think uh, hopefully people both in uh, South Asian studies and religious studies more generally uh, will will get their hands on some of this work. So thanks so much for making the time to talk.
2: Thank, Thank you, you. Thanks so much for having us and giving us opportunity to talk about it. It's great.
0: Thanks for listening to my conversation with Megan Adamson Sijoputi and Jessica Van Tyne Birkenholz about their great edited volume, Religion and Modernity in the Himalaya. It was published by Rutledge in 2016.